Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. It says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The word of God for the people of God. So like many pastors who were scheduled to preach this weekend, the tragic events in Baton Rouge and Falcon Heights and Dallas have shifted my thinking over the past few days. You might even say it's, it's consumed my thinking. Though as chance or perhaps better as providence would have it, I think that our sermon text for this week speaks in a very meaningful way to the state of our country and our city and even into our church. And it might take us a minute to get there, so I want you to sit tight, hang with me. You know me. We're going to talk about some first century Jewish context. I'm the only one excited about that. That's okay. Um, tonight's passage, it's a familiar story. In fact, if you have spent even one week with us here at the Restoration Project, you have heard this story, and in all likelihood, you have actually also acted it out. It's a story of a meal that's shared between Jesus and his 12 disciples, his closest friends. In fact, it's the story of their last meal together before Jesus is crucified. Now, the disciples do not realize that this is actually what's, what's happening, but Jesus certainly seems to. And as a result, there's a good amount of heaviness in the room. This is made very clear about halfway through the meal when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. It gets really dark there. You know, everybody's eating and having, having an okay time, and then Jesus takes it to a totally different level. And then beyond that, uh, Jesus starts to use the food that's there and the drink that's there to describe his broken body and his shed blood. This is not normal, light, casual dinner conversation. Jesus is taking us to a place of heaviness and weightiness. 
Now, beyond the depth of these statements that Jesus makes, however, there's another element that's adding to the significance invested in this meal. And Mark makes this clear from the very beginning. He announces that this meal is associated with the Passover. For the really close Bible reading nerds in the group, I just want to step over here and talk to you for a moment. Um, it's at least worth knowing that there's actually a lot of scholarly debate as to when this meal took place. Some people think that it may have happened before Passover began on the day of preparation, and other people uh, think that it actually happened on the first day of the meal. When you compare Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can see differences in the story. So people are divided on when they think this meal actually happened. They might think that Jesus is, is starting to observe Passover before Passover actually happens. But either way, what's clear in this text is this meal is associated with Passover, and the author wants you to bring these two things together. Whatever day it was when this meal took place, this is Jesus and his disciples observing the Passover, this major Jewish holiday. And as Jesus is accustomed to do, what he does is he hijacks the meal, and he claims it for his own purposes. And this is actually the real hinge of the story. And for us to understand this, we do have to get back into a first century frame of reference. In very simplistic terms, the Passover meal, it commemorated Israel's escape from Egyptian servitude that happened anywhere from 1,400 to 1,200 years prior. This is a moment in Israel's history that is absolutely land-breaking. Do people say land-breaking? Ground-breaking, land-shaking, shifting, moving. It's, it's, it's a big moment. Even today, people say for Christians, it's the cross and the empty tomb, and for the Jewish community, it's the exodus. It's the story of God's people in bondage, in servitude, overworked and completely taken advantage of. Egypt had these big building projects, and, and Israel was the means by which they were going to get it done. They were treated unfairly. They weren't compensated. They were overworked. They were desperate. They were tired. They were probably hopeless. So in something of a last-ditch effort, the text says they cry out to God to save them. And there's this great line in Exodus 2 that says, God hears Israel's cry and he remembered. He hears their cry for help, and he remembers the covenant that he makes with his people. I think there's a word in there for us this evening, that in the midst of our cries and in the midst of our moments of despair, God hears and God remembers. For Israel, this divine hearing and response it led to the installation of Moses as their leader and his incessant pestering of Pharaoh to let my people go. And it is totally appropriate for you now to have images of Charlton Heston in the forefront of your brain as you see him in the old movie that some of you are too young to know what I'm talking about. Each year during the Passover meal, what took place was the head of the household would retell this story of how God remembered his people and how God delivered his people. And to aid in the instruction, the different elements at the meal were used as teaching tools. So it wasn't just sit down and children, let me tell you a story. It was sit down and let me tell you a story. And in order to do that, let me show you the bread that we're eating at this meal. 
It's not your normal, beautiful, fluffy challah bread. It was unleavened bread. It was flat. It was like wafer-like because the way that Israel left Egypt was in the middle of the night with haste. The way that they were supposed to observe the meal was they would sit with their shoes tied and their bags ready to go and just kind of sitting there and eating, and it was almost like a hurried meal. Now, this changed over time as we see Jesus and his disciples lounging and reclining, and I'll tell you what that means as we go, but in, in the beginning, the way that this meal was instituted was supposed to be indicative of the flight in the middle of the night where Israel just had to go. The cup represented, uh, the cup of this wine, it represented, in a sense, victory. It represented moving into freedom. And at a traditional Jewish Seder or Passover meal, you would eat lamb. Because in the story in Exodus, the way that Israel is finally uh, asked to go from Egypt is because, and this, this sounds crazy, but stick with me, the angel of death comes over and kills the firstborn son and the firstborn animal, but the way that Israel was able to avoid that is they slaughtered a lamb and painted the door frames with the lamb's blood. All told, the Passover was a meal that signified and celebrated Israel's freedom This is made explicit in the seemingly insignificant line where they are just laying down and they're lounging and relaxing because this is the sign of freedom. Laying down to enjoy a meal however long it takes. And you know those meals, and I'll talk about them. It's like when you have course after course. Every year when we celebrate my birthday, what I like to do with Kate is to go to three or four different restaurants and we'll go to Outback and we'll get a Bloomin' Onion. And then we'll go somewhere else and get like a soup. And then we'll go somewhere else and get a sandwich. We've done it like one time and I'm acting like we do it all the time. But I loved it. It was great because we would get all of my favorite stuff for my birthday uh, slash birthday week slash birthday month. I mean, you got to celebrate. You know what I mean? So we see Jesus and his disciples lounging and remembering and retelling the story. But this time it was a bit different. N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, he says, it's a deep human instinct that we mark significant moments with significant meals. And with the Passover meal, the Jewish community certainly marked a significant moment in their history. And I do think that we can relate to this. Yeah, there's my birthday stuff, and I could take you back even farther. When I was growing up with um, my parents and me and Erica, every birthday, I don't know if you remember this, but every birthday mom would say, what do you want to eat? And we'd have like that normal rotation of food, beef stroganoff and more beef stroganoff. That's all that's coming to my mind right now. I don't know why. Um, but every, every birthday, um, I would remember I wanted mom to cook this chicken that she just puts a ton of cheese on and barbecue sauce. And she called it smothered chicken. I think it was really just dumping a bunch of stuff on a chicken breast, but I loved it, and I would ask for it from time to time. I'll move on to something else here. Um, Wedding rehearsals and wedding receptions, I think, is more to the point where you know that there's a significant moment that's marked by the food. One of the great perks of being a pastor is you get to attend and officiate weddings, and you get a pretty sweet seat at the reception. And last fall, Kate and I were at this beautiful site overlooking the water. It was near St. Michael's, I believe. And it was the hors d'oeuvres that just completely went 
out of this world. There was shrimp cocktail, the si- it was like the size of my head. I have a small head, but I mean, it was, it was huge. And it was just like, this girl would come around and be like, anybody want shrimp cocktail? And I would just start like making my way over to where she was because it was, it was beautiful. And then they had greens and they had pulled pork and you get the point. There's things that we enjoy in these, these moments of celebrating uh, are centered around meals. One more meal story followed by another meal story. Um, when I finally finished my PhD, I didn't really want to celebrate. Um, mainly because in order to complete this, I had to do what's called an oral defense where my advisors would just ask me a bunch of questions and I was kind of scared that if we set something up that I would end up being that I failed and then I didn't want to have to like shuffle into, you know, the place where all of my friends were. So I tried to get people to, to lay back a bit, but I remember that night, for me, it was 10 years in the making, finishing this crazy degree and walking into Buffalo Wild Wings. It wasn't really a surprise, but seeing a bunch of my friends there to celebrate it was super meaningful. Around the table, we share ourselves. We share our stories. Sometimes at a really good meal, and here I'm not just talking about shrimp cocktail the size of your head. I mean, at a really good meal with really good people and just the conversation is, is beautiful. I hope you know what I'm talking about. We share our hopes and we share our dreams. We share our fears and we share our insecurities. At the table, I've been inspired I've been heartbroken, I've been challenged, and I've been encouraged. There's an importance to sharing meals that goes beyond just nutrition. We can also relate, I think, to the traditions surrounding some of our most significant meals. I talked about the birthday stuff, but Thanksgiving is a huge moment for me because my birthday is usually around that time, but I love Thanksgiving because it's kind of low on commercialism. It's just about food and family and football and you're together, and it's great. And my brother-in-law and I have recently started a new tradition for Thanksgiving. We've begun frying turkeys. So we have this big 10-gallon jug that we fill with a random amount of peanut oil, and we heat it up and hope that it doesn't spill all over the place. And both times that we've tried to do this, mom would cook a backup turkey in the oven in the garage because she didn't trust that we could do it. Shame on you, mother. But it was, it was Jim and I in the backyard wearing aprons and gloves. And because of the spillage of the, the oil, we had a golf club with a, um, a washcloth wrapped around the end and rubber banded so you could just kind of go like this and get it all cleaned up and nice. It was a ridiculous sight, but it was one of those things where even though it's just two years, it's something that I'm hopeful will become a ridiculous tradition. And yes, the golf club has made its appearance both years. What's interesting about Mark's account of the Passover, in the midst of all of its traditions and its significance, the traditions change. If Jesus does, in fact, retell the story of the Exodus, which is what the audience would have anticipated, we don't have a record of it in Mark. If Jesus prays the expected prayer over the bread and over the wine, we don't hear it. Instead, Mark has Jesus affixing new significance to these elements. Of the bread that he has broken, he says, this is my body. And of the wine, he says, this is my blood of the covenant that's poured out for many. 
Jesus is not just being weird here. He's reinterpreting the exodus and pointing beyond it to the true and final freedom that he is about to bring in his death and his resurrection. It's as if Jesus is saying, I am the new Moses. I will lead you into a new exodus out of oppression and into life. But before we can get there, I think this is important for our specific moment right here and right now. Before we can jump to the hope that we find in Jesus, we must recognize that this invitation into life and into freedom is made possible only by the darkness of death, by the fragility that is occasioned by betrayal, by the confusion and the pleading that is demonstrated in Jesus' lament, where in the very next story we find him in the garden pleading to his Father if there is any other way. Or we fast forward and find Jesus on the cross with arms spread saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a heaviness in the room. And for many of us today, there's a heaviness. I'm a white, middle-class male. I have a wife. I have two kids. I have a dog. I am the walking caricature of the average man. I don't know what it's like to be the object of real and unrelenting prejudice because of the color of my skin. I don't know what it's like to be suspected of crimes that I did not commit or prosecuted for crimes that I did not commit. I don't know what it's like to be afraid of being pulled over except for the fact that I might get a speeding ticket. I don't know what it's like to have to convince people or feel that I have to convince people that I matter, that I have worth, that I should be treated with dignity and respect. I don't understand the anger and the pain and the suffering that is being experienced by many, if not all, people of color in America this week. But I do know that for some of you, this has been the reality of your experience and the events of this past week, seeing two more wrongful deaths is perhaps more than you can bear. And before I rush to offer you or us hope, before I rush to an easy answer, a quick prayer, a pat on the back, I want to give you space to mourn and to be angry and to grieve, and to lament. And I want to respect you enough to listen to ask myself really difficult questions about prejudice and privilege and whether or not I have loved my neighbor well. I'm also a pastor of a small church, as you can see, on the Eastern Shore. My work consists of writing and reading. I have pastor hands that don't get too dirty. I try to meet the spiritual needs of this congregation and really anyone else that comes into my path. If I'm sitting at Rise Up and somebody that I know comes in, if they're having an issue, I try to sit with them and meet with them and pray with them and be whatever it is that they need me to be in that moment. 
I don't know what it's like to put my life on the line each and every day to protect my city or my state. I don't know what it's like to have to make life and death decisions very quickly with very little intel. I don't know what it's like to be mistrusted or feared because of the uniform that I wear. I don't know what it's like to be overgeneralized and stigmatized for decisions that I did not make in the line of duty. But I know that there's a heaviness weighing on many good men and women who wear a badge and on their families in the aftermath of the events of this past week. I am thankful for the examples of policing that was set in Dallas where officers were dutifully protecting people's right to peacefully protest. These people who were struggling just to make their voice heard, and I'm hopeful that we'll see more and more examples of this sort of policing in the next few days and weeks to come as we wait for justice to be served. And what I think makes all of this so incredibly complex is the layer upon layer of issues underlying these difficulties. Racial, ideological, theological, political. There's a heaviness in the room. I do think that the story we read tonight about Jesus and his friends in a room sharing a meal, I, I do think that it provides us with a way forward and perhaps one that does not diminish the pain that's being felt, maybe not even just in this room, but in our community. Within the Christian tradition, Jesus' reappropriation of the Passover meal now imbued with new significance. He has the new Moses and the new Exodus leading people into freedom. It becomes very important. In fact, another writer in the New Testament named Paul talks about how this meal is one that should be shared regularly, for in so doing, we remember Jesus' suffering we remember his sacrifice. We remember our freedom. We remember our exodus. Around this table, we seek forgiveness. We surrender our fears. We reorient our hopes and dreams. We bring the heaviness, the uncertainty, the fear, the fatigue and jadedness and frustration, the pain that cannot be explained in words, and we eat and we drink. Each week we share this meal together and each week I implore us to recognize the unity that we have as followers of Jesus in the midst of our diversity. This is not a uniformity where we all look the same, think the same, act the same. Because our lives and our stories are incredibly diverse. Our experiences are different. Our outlooks are different. Our circumstances are different. Our political views are different. Our understanding of God is different. The way that we seek to live out the teachings of the Bible are oftentimes different. But when we approach this table, we say that in and through Christ, regardless of our differences, we are not all the same but we are family, we are united. When you mourn, I mourn. When you lament, I lament with you. When you pray, I join in and petition God on your behalf. And when I don't understand what you're going through, I don't reduce my involvement to platitudes or to Facebook posts 
or actionless slogans. I listen and I work and I fight because you matter and because your story and your voice is important to me and to us, to the body of believers. This week, what I'd like to do is challenge us to consider what would happen if we actually lived this out. What would happen if we prayed with tenacity to see things change? What would happen in our community if we stepped outside of ourselves, outside of our prejudice, outside of our privilege, outside of our ideologies, and listened and worked and fought for unity? What would happen if we shared this meal together? If when we did that, we remembered the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and the life that is now ours, and as a result, we became impassioned agents of hope. Maybe, maybe it would result in you building a new relationship or reestablishing one that has been fractured. Maybe it would mean that you find yourself in unfamiliar territory because you no longer want to talk, you want to do. Maybe it means that you volunteer your time and you work with kids at a summer feeding program. Maybe it means that you show up at a garden and you pull weeds. Maybe you begin to engage in a discussion that you have been too scared to enter into. Maybe you begin to advocate for someone who has been marginalized or oppressed or who is fighting for their closest relationships, perhaps even fighting for their very lives. Maybe you provide a home for a foster child. Maybe you provide a room for a teenager that's been displaced. Maybe you start to get honest with yourself and share your story for the very first time. Maybe you trust your community to love you and to stand with you and to be present with you what would happen if we lived in this way? I think it's time we find out. I think it's time that we move from slogans and platitudes into living the difficult and demanding life of reconciliation, of living in the midst of a diverse people who might not think like you do, who might not look like you do, who might not share all of your theological commitments. But in the midst of that, we come to the table and we begin to see Jesus for who he is, the one who offers us freedom and hope and life. And what's great about Jesus is all it takes is for us to say, I'm in. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whatever we're going through, hearing the story of a Savior who put it all on the line for us, and we respond with, I'm in. What would it look like if we allowed him to take control and what could our community gain from that, not just in these pews, but in this town, in this region, 
think it's time we try.